You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... (laughs) These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hi there, I'm Mark Kenny from ANU's Australian Studies Institute and this is Democracy Sausage coming to you from the spacious studios of the Crawford School of Public Policy. Now I say spacious because we're keeping guests at least a sword length apart, Parliament House style, more to minimise infectious risk than bloodshed. And frankly, we might need to go much further, such as doing these podcasts remotely in not too distant future. I'm on Insiders this coming weekend, for example, and even before the PM signalled we should not travel interstate, the ABC had decided against flying people to Melbourne for the show, so I'll be appearing from the capital. It's pretty much the way the economy is being reorganised all over the place. These are most troubling times, probably the most troubling times any of us have known. Unless you're one of that dwindling generation that survived the Second World War, you've not seen disruption or uncertainty like the global corona crisis, nor will you again, hopefully. Everything and everyone is threatened. Still, in Australia, a she'll-be-right attitude has pervaded social discourse and weakened public defences. Make no mistake, this is a full-blown emergency, the real kind. Life and death, out of control, harsh and indiscriminate. Yet a cynical, polarised polity, rubbed raw by years of populist advantage-taking and low trust, has positioned Australia poorly. On social media, the warriors line up, basking in an I-told-you-so schadenfreude, and defiantly advocating non-compliance so as to better prosecute their case that Scott Morrison has been too slow, too muddled, and was wrong to advocate going to the football little over a week ago. They're right, of course, he has made mistakes and he was wrong. But why punish ourselves? Whether it be going to the beach or in the pubs and cafes, too many Australians simply ignored the warnings over the most recent weekend, apparently taking the view that until the government makes such behaviour illegal, it is absolutely fine to go on as normal. No enlightened self-interest here then. This speaks to a staggering immaturity of culture and turns on its head the national trope of mateship, the selfless Aussie hero and all that. In the bushfires, we saw us at our best. COVID-19 perhaps is showing at least some of us at our worst. What are we saying to the government? Make mandatory laws because we are childlike, incapable of complex reasoning, of even acting in our own health interests? It's a kind of infantilism. Just to be clear, the PM has made errors and there have been confusing messages. The debacle over the school closures continues. But behaving as if this is some kind of media beat-up 
is socially and morally indefensible. It could cost lives. Does anyone really think that all these governments around the world are just panicking, that a government here that stood almost exclusively for delivering a budget surplus is lightly going into hundreds of billions of dollars of new spending? Or that Germany's ban on public gatherings of more than two people is just a bit of window dressing? Our guests today have views on all of these matters and more, of course. Professor John Hewson is no stranger to this podcast. He's a former federal leader of the Liberal Opposition and is a professor here at the Crawford School of Public Policy. Hi, John. Welcome back. And Professor Rory Medcalf, who heads the National Security College here at ANU and whose new book is just out, Contest for the Indo-Pacific, Why China Won't Map the Future. Rory, great to have you here. Thank you indeed, Mark. I hope the book is going well. I think it's something to uh, to read in self-isolation and uh, <laughs> takes a long view on historical problems. So, uh, yeah, I, I hope it's useful. You've identified a whole range of really interesting issues in this, and it's one of a number of books that have come out uh, sort of looking at the, the strategic issues around the, you know, the arrival of China in the world and in this particular region. Uh, and, of course, uh, you know, nothing, no debate happens outside this COVID-19 crisis as well, and it's not without import that uh, that's where the COVID-19 crisis began in, began in China. We'll come back definitely, obviously, to the COVID question. But uh, apart from the obvious, the juncture of two oceans, can you just sort of take us through what the Indo-Pacific is as a construct and why it matters as, uh, you know, in terms of the way you've uh, written this book and in terms of the way we see our future and, I guess, global stability? Sure. Ab- absolutely, Mark. I mean, I think, uh, you know, at the one level, a book that seems to be about about maps and geography and and where a country is in the world and how that shapes our um, our, our strategy, our foreign policy, and, and so forth. It, it may seem a bit of a uh, an indulgence or a luxury in a time when we're facing a, a really critical global crisis to do with uh, human welfare. But the the book is really about power uh, and the choices that nations make in, into the future, and so. What I would argue in this book on the so-called Indo-Pacific is that as China and other major countries have risen in this uh, large region, this large region of two oceans over the past few decades, China, India, Indonesia uh, and others, we've seen both extraordinary connectivity develop and contestation between countries. And the book, interestingly, opens with the idea that whatever you say about the next 10 years, based on the history of the last 20, is going to be a kind of a gift to fate. Uh, There are so-called black swans or black elephants, shocks that are going to disrupt everything. But uh, I guess quite worryingly for me as a strategic analyst, um, much of what we're seeing in the international responses to coronavirus bears out that strategic competition between nations revolving very much around China and Chinese power is occurring across this much larger regional and global canvas and that countries can't can't hide from these issues. No no island is an island, if you like. So I guess there's a there is a thread linking the story in my book about how do we cope, how do middle sized countries like Australia cope with the power and the wealth of China and the great disruption China is causing and, and the tribulations we're seeing now. And, and I just 
to conclude on that point, uh, the book actually makes an argument in, that in the long run, if China has ambitions to dominate this large region, this Indo-Pacific, those ambitions are going to be self-defeating. Uh, and a fascinating question is whether we're seeing an accelerated beginning of that process this year. Well, we'll come back to some of those uh, uh, issues in, in just a moment, but particularly on the COVID-19 crisis, uh, <sighs> again, sort of looking at it in terms of this binary that you you know, you know can test in this book, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that as well. But uh, you know, there have been some commentary about uh, how uh, Trump, for example, has referred to COVID-19 as the Chinese virus, uh, and uh, there are fears amongst some people who are watching this that uh, the way the two countries is responding to the to the crisis within their own, you know, domestic settings is 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 kind of tantamount to uh, the competition we saw during the Cold War. That prestige is at stake. That China has. Uh, you know, through very harsh measures of lockdown and so forth, has has got it under control to some extent, whereas the US is going the other way, and that you know, sort of prestige is is at play here. What what do you think of those issues? Is is there much in that? Look, there's a lot in that, and and one of the reasons that I wrote the book is to get beyond this. I think this false narrative that the whole the whole future of Australia, the world, our Indo-Pacific region boils down to the decisions of just China and the United States. They're both huge powers, they're both very influential, but we need to, I guess, um, marshal our agency as middle players, countries like Australia, Japan, the Southeast Asians, uh, India, the Europeans and so on, to make a difference to protect ourselves. Unfortunately, of course, we're seeing uh, both China and the United States uh, playing to some of their worst instincts uh, or the, the worst sides of their nature on this issue. And I think it is quite likely that we'll see beyond this current year of, of turbulence and turmoil and, and, and frankly, of suffering, uh, a United States and a China that have both inflicted significant harm on themselves, potentially on one another as well. And so, in fact, the uh, the guidance for the countries in the middle at the moment is to really diversify the relationships with which we can support our interests in, into the future. And I, look, I do think on that issue of uh, the, uh, the US administration very blatantly categorising COVID-19 as the China or Chinese virus, look, I think there are two narratives that are both sadly true. One is that this is a shock to the global system that has emerged from a domestic uh, health outbreak, uh, disease outbreak in China that could have been contained if the Chinese system had not been one based on a one-party state and on systematic suppression of truth. On the other hand, uh, the US clearly didn't use the time that it had to prepare to deal with this situation. And there's really nothing to gain in the international system now by turning this into a contest between China and the US. So we need to look now towards coexistence and cooperation. And that uh, that idea, that sort of binary idea of this competition between the two, going back to the kind of uh, taking it out of COVID but thinking more regionally, that's something you can test in this book, isn't it? You say it's it, that the Indo-Pacific region is... Uh, its future is as a multipolar region rather than a bipolar region. Well, we have to take 
the long view, and it's very hard to do that in the current crisis, of course. But if we take, let's say, a 25-year view, a generational view, and look to the 2040s, the um, no, no matter how things play out in the next year or so, there'll be damage to many, many economies. Uh, but the aggregate of other major Asian economies by the 20th, 2040s is likely to be as large or larger than China. In other words, there's almost a natural balancing mechanism built into our large Indo-Pacific region, this huge region that China has chosen to rise into, if you like, by extending the Belt and Road into Africa, the Middle East, across the Indian Ocean and so on. In other words, uh, other countries have agency too, and it's interesting that some of the countries responding relatively well to the uh, the great shock and risk of, um, of COVID-19, countries like Japan, South Korea, uh, Vietnam, Singapore, Maybe we can't call Taiwan a country on this podcast, but we can certainly call Taiwan a very, very effective uh, polity that's responded. These countries will all have agency too, and Australia still has the opportunity, and that's the huge question mark at the moment, Australia still has the opportunity to come out of this uh, with a degree of resilience. And if we take a generational viewpoint, then in a way, uh, China alone is not going to map the future and potentially could do itself a lot of harm along the uh, along the way because in some ways perhaps China's power in this multipolar region is never going to be as great as it is now. Yeah, that's a really interesting proposition. John Houston, do you see that idea of all of these other economies uh, growing in the region? I think of you know the really sort of potentially quite successful economies like Vietnam, which is very much an emerging economic power, and mm. of course India Indonesia. and uh, Indonesia, and and of course you know the the more established economies like South Korea and Japan. Do you see all of these? I mean, that that argument uh, that Rory just put—that the aggregate of these will very much be a contest to the the power of China over coming decades. Yeah, I, I agree with that very strongly. I think it's inevitability, really, and I think the current circumstances may have actually not only damaged the standing of China but also the standing of the United States in terms of the region, which is a unique time, I think, an opportunity for countries like Australia to actually think through our strategic positioning, taking a longer-term view, 2040 view, perhaps, um, and putting in place structures that, that do that. To go to the COVID debate, we're going to go into a global recession, maybe a year, maybe two years. Um, the, the, the slogan is we're going to bounce out the other side. We better bounce out the other side into something that makes a lot of sense strategically. It's a unique opportunity for us to pull back a bit, think about some of these bigger, bigger, longer-term strategic issues, including our relationship with the United States, with China, and importantly, I think, our relationship with the other countries of this Indo-Pacific region, then I think you've got a unique opportunity to do something. Fortunately, we tend to get lost in the day-to-day uh, mire of of uh, the response to COVID nineteen, but the the opportunity for longer term strategic thinking, ironically, has probably never been better than it is today. And I think <coughs> I think a lot of strategic thinkers, like it or not, are going to have plenty of thinking time over the next six months. Mm. <laughs> well, I think that's definitely true. We're all uh, getting to spend a fair bit of time by ourselves, or uh, you know, in our homes, working from home, and so forth. It's a uh, it's a time where I guess. If you're a researcher, there is some opportunity as well as inconvenience in all of this, and mm. that would be the same for many people in the, in the kind of thinking business. What about this idea, though, that China is a single 
you know, it's a single nation, it's a very powerful nation, it's, it's been growing in power for a long time. These other economies, yes, they are, uh, together they are, they also have might, but can they be played off against each other? I mean, that has been the Chinese mm. approach in the past. China, for example, in, in the territorial disputes in the South and East China Seas, have, has preferred to try and deal with countries separately rather mm. than through multilateral forums, which is a, I think, a signal of how China views its power and, 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 and seeks to exploit it. So, I mean, is it, a, is it kind of potentially illusory to talk about these countries as having any kind of strategic weight together? Look, we shouldn't be complacent about that. And I've been accused of being optimistic. I like to say I'm being confident about this rather than optimistic. Of course, there's enormous uncertainty and contingency about whether, in fact, other countries can build the solidarity that they need. Um, my book makes the argument that by so rapidly expanding its interests, often quite assertively, across such a wide region, across the Indo-Pacific, but also across Eurasia on land as well. Um, China has, in fact, created the circumstances where it's it's increasing the the quantum of natural balances against it. It's actually allowing, for example, countries like India and Japan to quite substantially cooperate to balance Chinese power. That would never have happened if China hadn't simultaneously expanded its interests uh, and its presence into India's and indeed Japan's neighbourhood, which of course I should I should acknowledges China's neighbourhood too mm. at the same time. Now, if China, if the People's Republic of China, because we have to emphasise what we're talking about here, if, if the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Republic of China continue to uh, work uh, cleverly to uh, really, if you like, um, coerce other countries one by one rather than uh, in groups, uh, then yes, it will be much harder to mobilise some kind of solidarity or pushback and response. However, if you look at the experience of the past 10 years, there are plenty of occasions where China's pushed against more than one or two or three countries at the same time, and those countries are beginning to find their their solidarity now. India and Japan, some of the Southeast Asians, interestingly, uh, even while COVID-19 was beginning to come into the headlines, we saw China pushing against uh, Indonesia in essentially contested waters in the South China Sea. And of course, Indonesian nationalism is something you don't really want to unlock uh, as a, um, I guess, a formidable force in the long run, even though Indonesia as a power has difficulty in mobilising. And then finally, there's the question of China's internal challenges too, because although, as we've seen in the response to COVID-19, an authoritarian state has extraordinary power to mobilise, there's a large array of, uh, I guess, people and communities within some sense of greater China who, who frankly are looking for any opportunity to push back against the Chinese Communist Party in the medium term. And so my book aggregates, for example, if you look at uh, the Uyghurs, the Tibetans, Hong Kongers, Taiwanese, former Falun Gong, democracy dissidents, and, and frankly, the middle classes in China, whose health and welfare is really the reason why they support the party. Uh, any uh, vague coalition of any of these groups would cause an enormous headache for the party state, force it to turn inwards or behave irrationally in the international system. And so... My book is not arguing that we should, in a bloody-minded way, just push back against China at every opportunity, but rather that other countries need to be firmer in setting the boundaries to China as to what is acceptable in behaviour in the international system, 
so that in the long run we find a kind of settling point uh, where it doesn't all end in tears. And, of course, we're still a long way from that settling point. I was just going to say there is a danger that China is its own worst enemy in terms of those regional relationships because of some of the damage that has been done. But I'd emphasise uh, Rory's point that domestically they have some enormous structural challenges. You know, the inequality across China, uh, the very significant wealth inequality, also a significant inequality and opportunity. Uh, you've got an ageing population in the context of a slowing economy, irrespective of the impact of COVID-19. It's been slowing and it'll slow a lot more and they don't want to admit that because of the social pressures and consequences that can flow from that. You've got issues like corruption, pollution, massive debt problem, more than 300% of GDP, and some of that is localised debt problems. So these are very big structural challenges which will slow up <laughs> anyone in, who's, who's in charge in China and actually dealing with some of these broader issues. So they'll have domestic constraints at a time where I think they have done some damage to themselves. I mean, one of the things that worries me about the impact of COVID-19, though, is it's one of those things where you really need a collaborative regional or international approach and yet everyone's sort of closing down borders and, and going uh, uh, isolationist and, um, and uh, you know, unfortunately the virus doesn't re re respect uh, geographic borders. And at a time where, you know, people are starting to question the benefits of globalisation or regionalisation, uh, it's sort of drifting the wrong way in the near term. Yeah, it's a real irony, isn't it? Because um, globalisation, which has delivered so much for mm. the world in terms of lifting people out of um, poverty um, in economic development, giving opportunities, and 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 the the fact that we are so interconnected economically, but also right. socially, the travel is so has been so easy for so long, and there's of course, as we know, a terrible lag time in the infection of someone and the manifestation of symptoms, and what this has allowed uh, as. Um, you know, a fair amount of travel around the world of people even before authorities, which in many cases have been pretty damn slow in responding to some of these things. But even if they hadn't, there was always going to be this problem of this lag. And so we see um, the, the virus all around the world. And as you say, at a, at a time of um, inter you know, need for international cooperation and when you might think there is a... Um, a lot of scope for international cooperation. Uh, the, the the manifestation of the virus itself does lead to countries needing to close their borders, to shut up shop, to to withdraw within. And of course, also added to that is the fact that the U.S. is no longer the the kind of um, you know international leader that it has been, or global leader that it has been in the past. Uh, you know, people aren't aren't going to be looking to Donald Trump for leadership. One wouldn't imagine, uh, you know, in, outside of the U.S. and and barely even within it. Uh, so these are these There's are also other. been stronger regional thinking. I mean, I think back ten, fifteen years or so, when people used to talk about the possibility of ASEAN plus one mm. or two or three or four, yeah. or whatever. But taking a more regional perspective on some of these issues, and from Australia's point of view, having been initially excluded and then subsequently included, and then various summits that we've been able to be part of, and so on, there has been a thinking, I think, a shift in thinking in favour of a more substantive regional relationships which is a very good thing in the context of what Rory's talking about in his book because there's a platform there that can be built on and if China's doing itself gratuitous harm by the way it's been going, uh, particularly buying, uh, you know, investing a lot of low-interest sort of low debt money into countries which will never be able to repay it type of attitude, I mean there's an opportunity here to actually think, I think, sensibly about 
the the region hmm. and uh, and to reposition our, ourselves as a country within that. Um, we've had obviously Professor Hugh White on this uh, podcast before, and and uh, many listeners will be familiar with uh, with his work in, in this space as well. How would you say your? I mean, what we're hearing now from you is a, a kind of a different story about the rise of China and the strategic uh, threat. So, could you just summarise where how you differ from Hugh White's thesis? Yeah, sure. Look, but I've got a lot of respect for the way that um, that Hugh uh, has played into the Australian and, and indeed international debate uh, on strategic issues o- over the years. But I I would say pretty directly that um, when my book uh, emphasises the falseness of uh, of certain binaries, uh, Hugh's work is obviously on the on, on, on the list of the um, the uh, uh, the progenitors of that of that idea. And I also think that Hugh uh, doesn't address two, I think, obvious parts of the of, of the puzzle. One is look inside China. What is not only the nature of the Chinese system, but what are the the stresses and the pressures inside the Chinese Much system? Much like John was just saying. For Absolutely, example, yeah. nations are not. Billiard balls, and I think that's a that, that, that's a mistake of much of the, if you like, classical sort of international relations way of looking at things. Secondly, the um, the idea that, uh, that 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 Hugh suggests that somehow the great powers can keep out of each other's way, so China and India, that somehow if China and India can come up with spheres of influence and spheres of interest, or indeed China and the US, as Hugh uh, used to argue in his previous work. Then all, all all will be well for strategic order, even though it won't be so pleasant for small and middle countries that find themselves carved up by those great powers. I think it's too late for that, and the the whole concept of the Indo-Pacific, which is not about India, it's about China. China, mm. since it became a net importer of oil back in the early nineteen nineties, has inevitably structurally been pushing into the Indian Ocean, South Asia, Africa and the Middle East. In other words, China is even more in India's backyard in some ways than the United States is in China's backyard. And that's not going to unwind anytime soon. So these kinds of powers won't be able to keep out of each other's way. Multipolarity will become more and more a reality. And the good news in that is that middle powers are going to have a bit more agency than I think uh, Hughes' analysis suggests uh, that balancing actually has a certain logic and importantly that that China the Chinese leadership is not stupid in fact China is less of a risk taker than it likes to give the impression every time a power like Japan or India or indeed smaller powers like Vietnam is pushed back they've actually gotten somewhere uh, so there is there is hope that we can find that settling point without simply, if you like, conceding to every demand uh, that Chinese propaganda puts to us. So would you say it's fair to, to summarise that where Hugh is warning of uh, a kind of a continuing rise of China, you're arguing that strategically it may have already peaked? Well, it, that China, that, that we have to be open to multiple plausible futures and that it is just as plausible that uh, China is already passing that Peak and is projecting a much greater shadow uh, than, than than the future reality would suggest, or that uh, even as China becomes more powerful, it's rising in a multipolar region where we don't need to rely purely on the United States to protect our, uh, our our interests. And either way, the policy prescription that I would come up with that perhaps 
would differ from whether it's Hughes or certain others, is that there is a strong logic in diversification of uh, partnerships, of security partnerships, mm. and calibrated pushback. Where I would agree with Hugh, actually, is the need for small and middle powers to build their own strategic weight and their own national resilience, because you're going to need these things no matter what plausible future you face. And for Australia, uh, a lot of that resilience will come not necessarily in how many submarines we build or by when we build them, but in building the, I guess, the structures internally to cope with external pressure. And that's why the next year or two is going to be an extraordinary test for this country. I get the impression that the US is pretty well focused on China and not understanding these other regional questions to the same extent you might have imagined. I mean, it may have just been an ignorant statement by, by Trump, but when he said to Modi, you're lucky you don't share a common border with China, <laughs> it shows to me that there, there, there's, a, there's a gap in thinking. Well, although Mo- Modi could have said they share a border with Tibet, but that yeah, would be right. perhaps provocative. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it says to me that um, it is a, a unique time to be actually looking at this sort of issue from the point of view of, of our position in that region. And with the US really not going to be focused on that very much, I mean, they are obsessed obviously about China, but I think there they've misjudged China very badly. I mean, in terms of some of the trade war pressure that Mm -hmm. the US tried to put on China, I mean, they ignored the fact that Chinese are in a very powerful financial position relative to the US. They are the largest holder of US government debt. They only have to stop taking some rather than, you know, sell any. Uh, They've always got the power to move their exchange rate if they wish and where the criticism that they are manipulating it, but so what? I mean, they have two very powerful instruments that they could exercise at any time, and the impacts uh, on them from the trade restrictions so far have been perhaps more limited than than Trump might have hoped. I mean, they've been able to compensate or or, or divert uh, in response to those. Let's I think there will be a fundamental mistrust of China, though, that endures in the United States, no matter matter which way the current crisis goes and I think the tragedy is that there'll be a there'll be some kind of reckoning for that over time. Mm. This is one of the other premises in this whole debate is that as China rises the US is is fading uh, is is declining in as terms of, in terms of a strategic power. You say it's down but it's not out. Look it's, I mean it's the US is going to undergo uh, extraordinary turmoil and harm over the next year or two so we can't really leap to any conclusions about that. I mean, I think if I was having this conversation six months ago before we saw, if you like, uh, the, the COVID-19 situation and the, uh, the the Trump administration's response to that, I would have very much taken the view that uh, not only is the US down but not out, but in fact uh, it will have enduring strengths and uh, even the US, the United States, playing the role of a normal great power in Asia, in, in the Indo-Pacific, is going to be enough to tilt the balance against China uh, whenever the US chose to act. I would still stick largely to that assessment, but there are so many unknowns in the international system at the moment that uh, I take comfort in the fact that um, my analysis uh, is not about putting all of our hope in the US basket anyway. I wouldn't exaggerate the strength of the US economy. I think they're going to have a really significant day of reckoning if there's a global recession. Because most of what Trump has done, he's done on the tick. He's blown the budget deficit out to five and a half, six percent of GDP on the top of a very high level of debt with a lot of structural inefficiencies in the system. 
And uh, you know, one of those obviously will be the impact on the health system immediately, which is mm. quite inadequate to deal with. This Such crisis. as it is, yeah. But more broadly, I think there are some significant issues in infrastructure and, of course, in terms of government financing and, and so on that, that will constrain what the US does internationally for quite some time. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back and talk a bit more specifically, I think, about the COVID crisis as we see it playing out here in Australia. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, welcome back. Uh, we'll talk now a little bit more about uh, as this COVID crisis, COVID nineteen crisis, uh, um, you know, reshapes everything. Let's talk about uh, initially the national cabinet, John Hewson, um, as as it is called. Is it really a national cabinet, and and do you think it should have the uh, leader of the opposition on it, Anthony Albanese? Well, it's an unholy alliance, isn't it? <clears throat> I mean, you, it's a good thing that you pull the states together with the federal government on an issue like this. But there, I don't think there's probably been enough recognition in that process that the states basically run schools and hospitals. <laughs> well, that's principally why it's done, though, isn't it? Because it's, uh, so because the idea is to get some overlay of coordination there. But I've always had the view that they would, at some point, the states would break out and worry about their own domains because they're immediately responsible under their political system for that. But I think if it's a genuine, you know, we've heard war, talk of a war cabinet or a genuine national response, then yes, the leader of the opposition should be on it. And I think that um, it's only sensible to do that. I mean, there's a lot of speculation that because there are four Labor states that it's not really bipartisan. But um, putting uh, Albanese on there may have just dispensed with that in the sense that he would take a, a, a broader, more responsible view, I think, than the interests of any particular state. And... Um, I can't see him as the sort of person who's going to knowingly disrupt the process, but they might be able to you know, have an influence on the structure of stimulatory packages, for example, which may be more effective. Oh, well, and there's just the, the signal it sends as well. Mm. I mean, if you are trying to get uh, people in Australia to understand the sheer gravity of this, and, and let's mm. be honest, they've... Uh, between the Reserve Bank and and the Morrison government, they've dialed in $189 billion mm. worth of emergency spending in coming months to deal with this crisis. That is mm. utterly unprecedented in Australian mm. terms. Uh, it's gargantuan. And even as they are doing it, uh, Morrison is admitting that more needs to be done. Yet there, we still have these complaints, and I think some of these complaints are quite legitimate about mixed messaging. One message that would have really communicated Absolutely. how serious this was, would have been to put down the sort of political partisanship and say, I'm inviting the Leader of the Opposition to sit on this mm. body. I mean, the federal government still retains um, decision-making power out of it, but mm. uh, and those premiers do as well in terms of their own states, as, as I think we know under the Constitution. But it would have sent a very strong signal, I think, to people right across the political spectrum that this is different, mm. this is completely beyond 
the normal yeah. world. I think Morrison's had a particular problem with being seen as genuine. <clears throat> you saw that in the bushfires and the drought. I mean, he was questioned for the extent to which he really accepted the genuine nature of the of the, the the crisis that was yeah. before him. Well, he did Here go he overseas used this on holidays. In a way to try and bury that sentiment that he wasn't uh, that he is in control and he knows what he's doing. But then, of course, when he declares a pandemic and does nothing for several weeks, uh, it causes everyone to say, "Well, you know, okay, was that a stunt or was that a real, real move?" Mm. And uh, in those circumstances, and he's had a pretty cavalier attitude himself to some of those decisions. You mentioned before the the five hundred limit on um, on um, external gatherings. I mean, I doubt very much that five hundred was a number that the medical advisors put forward, and certainly didn't. Uh, you know, they just acquiesced in the idea you'd delay it for a couple of days so he could go to the footy or whatever. <clears throat> I just think he's well, doing it and it a lot of that. harm on that. It wasn't just that. He was actually advocating that other people should do it as well. Yeah, he said, I, I, I fully intend to go to the footy and if you if you wanted so to go, then go along as well. It's hard well, to criticise those on Bondi Beach for being cavalier when that was pretty cavalier. But having said that, I mean, well, uh, I he's losing that. the opportunity, I think, for to... to to actually re-establish some credibility to his leadership, the, he's, the, still, he's coming to terms with the fact still. And I'm not. This is not a, almost a sort of an apology, but it's a it, it's a human sort of explanation. He's coming to terms with the fact that this is a once in a century crisis, mm. and that it's an opportunity to break the extreme partisanship of the last ten mm. years. He may not come to terms with that quickly enough, and that's I think that's the fear that many of us have. Yeah, well, that is, I think, a very legitimate concern to have because really, as John Houston was just saying, we've had a sort of tidiness in the way these policy decisions have been made. Some of them have been very dramatic, but they arguably could have happened earlier, yeah. including you know, closing the borders to non-citizens and non-residents and non-citizens um, because we have been told repeatedly by health authorities, chief medical officer and various others, that the overwhelming uh, burden of infections has come from people coming from mm. abroad. Well, when the history of this is written, I think the decisions that were taken and the statements that were made one, two, three, four weeks ago from now will look actually frighteningly quaint. Yeah. And this uh, debacle over schools, it, it, as the National Cabinet, I think, has now been sort of exposed of, as having this, in a sense, you know, kind of, it is a, in, a, in a way it's a faux body, but because the premiers of states have their own constitutional powers and responsibilities, and they are the ones that deliver the healthcare and the education services and run police mm -hmm. and transport and all these other sorts of things. And the states are facing, uh, you know, very directly facing these threats. So we've seen some really mixed signalling over the weekend where we were told that New South Wales was going to go to a uh, complete, you know, what was effectively a lockdown. Uh, the schools were going to be closed and then that turns out not to be the case. Victoria uh, and ACT are said to be doing the same thing, but uh, there's confusion over whether that is just going to school holidays early or that they are going to, um, you know, uh, stay yeah, it looks closed. As if they've wanted to stay with the with the position that the schools are open, and then the states are saying yes. Uh, New South Wales are saying yes, but keep your children at home. Uh, Victoria's uh, moving its uh, <laughs> claiming to move the school holidays forward, whatever that means. Because uh, here you know, in Canada, what we call in, them we call it pupil free days. Yeah, pupil free days. <laughs> now we've got <laughs> new slogans coming out here, but. The fact, and at the same time, some states are just absolutely closing themselves out of the national. And Western Australia or Tasmania, Northern Territory, have pulled back completely and and sought to close their borders, and actually put uh, make people, uh, you know, uh, quarantine themselves for fourteen days if they choose to go across the border for every any reason. I mean, this is sort of fragmenting 
underneath what was in principle a, a fundamentally important thing to have done, which is to establish a, a national body which was bipartisan and which would deal with the issues on their merits, um, which is you know getting eroded as time goes on, unfortunately. It's a very emotional debate and decision, this whole question about people's children at schools, isn't mm. it? Uh, and, and this is, in a sense, I think... I think you can't underestimate it because um, it it goes to the, all the other messaging as well. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, people say, well, how can it be not safe to be in a cafe with a bunch of people but it's safe for my kids to be uh, travelling on a bus in amongst ordinary, uh, you know, adults and then going to a school and, and, and being in rooms where they've got nothing like, uh, you know, four square metres and so forth, how can that be safe? And it, because there's an inconsistency in that messaging, it has undermined all the other Absolutely. messaging as well. I mean, this is the problem. Mm. Hopefully, at the, at the very least, it will um, suddenly make uh, many ordinary citizens aware of the the fragility of our um, our half finished uh, nation, if you like, and mm. f- federalism, but uh, that's a that's, that's a small comfort, I think. But again, it's an opportunity, though, if you take that longer term view, to think about what sort of structure of government we should have. I mean, there are reviews being done. The Toady Review in New South Wales, for example, it's uh, looking at uh, how you would reallocate responsibilities between the Commonwealth and the states, how you'd properly appropriately fund those. This is a unique opportunity to say, okay, we now know some of the weaknesses of this system. Let's work to, over the next uh, couple of decades, to change this. But uh, you can do that in just about any area of public policy where there is a need for genuine, genuine reform and restructuring. But we aren't going to get too much strategic thinking when every day you're responding to the, the numbers that came out overnight, which are worse than you said they'd be a week ago. Yes, it you is know. It is remarkable to think that we're recording this on a Monday and it's, it's only really um, about eight, nine days ago that that statement by the PM was made about going to the football. Hmm. Maybe 10 days ago, I think he made it on the Thursday as he was uh, um, you know, announcing the uh, the $17.6 billion stimulus package, the first one, which, you know, I, th- I think probably some people thought was, was giant compared to mm. what had been foreshadowed. And now, of course, it has been utterly dwarfed by another $66 billion of spending that was announced. Just and as yesterday. the Prime Minister's conceded, that probably won't be the last. Yeah. Because there are big areas that have been left out of that. One of them being obviously what you know, what restrictions put on landlords, for example, because a lot of small businesses, whether they're retail or or uh, <clears throat> in in sort of light industrial or whatever, depend on the landlords, <laughs> and uh, quite often landlords just insist on the rent being paid. Uh, so rent holidays and uh, you know repayment delays or something are inevitable. I think so. There's you can look at a whole series of issues that haven't been addressed. Yet they're fundamentally important to, to business at being able to sustain itself over this period. And it won't just be a month. I mean, there was an early assessment by the Prime Minister in one comment that, you know, we're going looking at a V-shape, you know, we'll turn around mm. very quickly. Sure, it'll hit us. <clears throat> we'll have a negative quarter. We'll try and make sure that the June quarter of this year is not negative again. And then actually we're now looking at the prospect of the recession negative running quarters. through this year, maybe into next year, particularly if there is a global recession, which seems inevitable as well. So, you know, it's, it's a time to say, okay, well, we've got to deal with this day by day. Strategically, we've got to take the long-term view. You can't keep saying we're going to bounce back, <clears throat> you know, to uh, the other side when uh, you can't go back to the way you were. It wasn't that flash. The economy was quite weak. I mean, what are you going to do to make sure that when you come out, there is an industry here? And um, so I think that 
those who are looking at, say, shouldn't we be thinking about re-establishing our manufacturing base in some areas or <clears throat> looking at strategically significant sectors which we should be fostering the development of in a medium-term sense while we're doing this? I mean, those sort of issues are going to get a lot of currency, I think. Um, Tony Abbott recently made the point uh, that you're going to your uh, comment about uh, manufacturing, made the point that this highlights how important manufacturing is to an economy. This is, of course, a man who, when Prime Minister, presided over the end of the Australian car industry. Um, Mm. But what's your assessment of the the overall packages? Uh, Do you think, uh, I, I guess the obvious question is, is it enough? And you've just said you think a fair bit more is going to be needed. But are you... Do you uh, give them marks for the way in which they're going about this, like going uh, looking at at all the key areas and trying to come up with answers? Yeah, look, I think I've got a couple of concerns. One, I was uh, disturbed that there is to be no budget. Now, I'm not saying that it's going to be easy to put together a budget and perhaps we don't need a full budget, but we do need to know the thinking on which they're basing these decisions and what strategically are they assuming will happen to growth and unemployment and just the key the key indicators through the rest of this year into next year so that everyone's got to have a framework within which to work. Business actually is screaming to, so, you know, just to understand exactly where we're going, why we're going. So I think that's a weakness in what's happening. You can't sort of just take Treasury advice and put packages together um, now don't forget Treasury, a group of guys that you know, really a group of people that have never really worked in the real world. They've mostly been in isolated in Canberra. And so their idea of what will work in a particular sector to turn it around or sustain it is, is, uh, is different. Um, but I think, um, one of the weaknesses in the system is you've got the Reserve Bank, for example, doing what it doesn't really want to do. <clears throat> There's no way it wanted to make a, a $90 billion funding facility available to the banks to allocate to SMEs on a pretty unknown basis, given the banks haven't had a track, good track record of mm. doing that, as the Hain Royal Commission showed you. Uh, and, um, you know, I think about two-thirds of this uh, package, this $189 billion package or the $66 billion package, is on debt. Now, our biggest problem is actually debt. We have got a very significant debt crisis, household debts at record levels, 120% of GDP, nearly 200% of household disposable income, and yet if, and corporate debt hasn't been that flash as well. So you're going to fund our way out of this by even more debt, which uh, unless you've got some way in which that's going to be miraculously funded when you bounce out the other side, is going to be a major constraint on what we can do. So those sort of issues need to be thought about. Um, you know, we're looking down the, the, the possibility now of very large budget deficits for a number of years and, uh, you know, debts, uh, perhaps rocketing past a trillion dollars nationally as federal debt. These are big numbers that weren't contemplated well, they've just lifted a few the months debt, ago. That's right. They've lifted the debt ceiling, haven't they? Today? They've lifted the debt ceiling. They'll lift it again, presumably, because most of this is on the basis of debt. Hmm. Uh, and there's not a lot of direct stimulus. I mean, okay, they, they are going to run down the, tax base quite significantly by delaying the receipt of PAYE tax and uh, and other things. But, um, and you know, there won't be much activity to tax, so there could be a very significant impact on the budget in the near term. Uh, people need to have some sense as to where they think that's going. I mean, even if it's a series of scenarios, you know, that if we think that might go this way or, or that way on different assumptions and we're working on this... Pr- You've got to have a sense of where they're going and how they're doing it. You can't just say, oh, we'll tell you in October uh, what what we based the decision on in in February and March. But to be fair, they're on a hiding to nothing. Whatever uh, assumptions they they predicate uh, decisions on will be, uh, you know, so hard to nail down and and inevitably wrong. 
Mm. and then they'll be criticised for that. They have always been wrong. and um, <laughs> They're wrong and, even in the good times. Yeah, even in the good times. But and then, look, it is harder to make those sort of assessments, but surely you are making them. If you come with a number, $66 billion for a package, how did you come to that? Sixty, Yeah, $66.1 billion. What, what, what is the context in which you're doing that? And you know, initially the first package was about 1% of 1.2%, I think, of GDP. Now it's about 10% of GDP. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, and the suggestions around the world that it probably needs to be at least double that in order to have an impact that's uh, going to sustain the basis of GDP. Uh, these are big questions that are, on which they're not providing. They're really, answers. they're really interesting economic questions, and they're also really interesting political ones. And one of the, uh, I mean, I lived as a journalist through the GFC and watched uh, a government that had been elected with Kevin Rudd claiming to be a fiscal mm. economic conservative. Yeah, more conservative having, than John Howard. Yeah, that's right. Having to throw all <laughs> that out the window, um, <clears throat> and in a way, you know, there's a short term gain, I suppose, from giving people money. They're not going to sort of dislike you for the fact that you've sent them checks or whatever, but they knew they were throwing that record out the window. I can't help but wonder, Rory, what it would be like if we had a Labor government now, whether the coalition, the same people that are actually making these quite dramatic decisions, would allow a Labor government to do again what had to be done during the GFC. Yeah, look, I, I think these, if in some ways, in many ways, this is a worse a worse national threat in the GFC. Because yes, you've got is, the yeah. you've, you've got the health impact, the social cohesion impact, impact, which we haven't really gone to yet, uh, you've got the economic impact and you've got a strategic impact externally. So one would like to think the answer is yes. It's really yes. One would like to think it. I don't I, – look, for what it's worth, my judgment is there would be some criticism of it in terms of its scale and that this – and that Labor would be well aware of the political price it paid for its GFC spending as well. So – Perhaps in some ways having a conservative government that has done and pledged to do nothing about New Start, but has now had to double it. Now, I, I know it's only doing so temporarily at the moment, but um, what do you think, John? Do you think well, they'll ever go back? They've had to an awful lot of rhetoric. It'll be pretty hard to go they've, back they've, to, to New Start The arguments they ran against the government's response, the Rudd government's response to the GFC, they've had to eat all that rhetoric because mm. they're doing it in space. They're doing multiples mm. of that size package. Yeah. And they're doing it more broad based. They're doing it in a more socialist fashion. Mm, you know, more, more focused on, on, uh, individual benefits, welfare benefits, uh, sustaining business. Um, they, um, so there's a lot of rhetoric there that they've, that in the past they've had to ditch. And I think it's interesting that, uh, Albanese and the opposition have actually tried to be constructive through this process and not scored some of those points. You know, you can go back and pick up the rhetoric of well, some of the statements that Morrison himself has made about what happened at that period. You know, he'd be eating them, choking on them. Well, well they, they basically <laughs> pretended that the GFC hadn't really happened. That's I mean, right. that's been the and, sort of and, premise and, of the political attack over a dozen that, years. Yeah, the Labor Party exaggerated. They did too much. They wasted a lot of the spending. It was normal into programs that didn't work. Pink bats and you know school mm. halls and so on, which were ripped off. Uh, th these sort of arguments ran pretty strongly. And uh, they're susceptible to all those arguments right now, and I think some of the sectors might run them, even if the Labor Party doesn't, because uh, you know one of the things that does happen, unfortunately, in these sort of circumstances, is that that um, you know there are people that are prepared to game the system to their own benefit, and that that we should never underestimate how significant that can be. Uh, in response to a world where there's a lot of money going out the door and it's not a lot of time to police it mm. properly. Uh, and so in those circumstances, I think in time the Labor Party will have a lot of issues to talk about.
because as we see these programs unfold, they won't achieve uh, the immediate objectives that are being claimed for them. And, um, you know, but having said that, it's um, there very, isn't any choice. There's very little choice. Their back is to the wall. They've got to do this and probably more. That's right. And it's not about stimulus in the same sense. This no. is now, and they're not even it's saying. You know, they're not even suggesting that it is anymore. They're saying this is well, about. I noticed sort of, the word shifted from stimulus to cushion. Yeah, and and to providing a safety net under and, and safety nets w- yeah. words that they would not have used in the past. Well, and, but it's the right approach, isn't it? I mean, it is, yeah. you, you do have to have some capacity in the economy to bounce back. You were talking about this concept of bouncing back. When this situation resolves itself, when we find a resolution to it, the economy, the economy's ability to bounce back will be uh, contingent very heavily on the extent to which there are still these small firms, these small employers around uh, to to take up that They are demand. the big employers. The yeah. small industries are the small small medium-sized enterprises are the big employers. The government's also got a bit of a legacy issue that under the bushfire recovery programs, uh, a lot of people felt that they didn't qualify for the recovery money, you know, unless their business had been burnt down or their house yeah. had been burnt down, they weren't directly uh, funded. And uh, and the access to some of that funding has also been a pretty difficult bureaucratic process. So there's that legacy issue sitting out there. Uh, which they have to deal with as well, because when you know there's going to be a lot of requirements on the allocation of this money, a lot of tests and standards and you know requirements that uh, have to be met, and if it doesn't flow quickly enough, then of course you'll get the negative economic effects. I mean, pe- the businesses have stopped. Yeah, I've noticed so many shops around where I live in the Southern Highlands closing, people boxing up their stock because there's no point leaving it there in the window. We're probably going to have to close down anyway even though they are considered essential yeah. in the current definition of what's essential and what's not essential. And, you know, and people just aren't going to go out, they aren't going to spend, they aren't going to shop, and that impact is huge. It's absolutely massive. Potentially huge. Uh, are either of you concerned about the uh, the pr- one aspect of this package, that is the ability, giving people the ability to, to uh, dip into their superannuation holdings for the purpose of getting through this crisis? I thought that was inevitable, quite frankly. It's not a large-scale dip. You got three trillion dollars worth of assets in that industry, and it's uh, you know, it's it's in millions the number. But you um, you wouldn't want people to get used to it. No, they and can't get used to it. You've got to somehow say this is a one-off. Markets keep going down. <laughs> and 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 I think someone from Labor made the point this morning that you're asking people to sell out at the at, in a trough in in terms of oh, value. Look, so. you're imposing a real burden on people because they're doing it at a value of their super, which is way less than it was just a few weeks ago. Yeah, or a few months ago. And so, yes, I mean, it's, and if people have to feel that they want to chase the market down, uh, this is a really significant, you know, we could have a, at least a cumulative 50, 60% fall in stock markets. And that's a bulk of the super funds are heavily invested in, in stock markets. So let's say that's a 40% write down on the value of somebody's super. So we're talking a very about, big wealth effect. Are we talking about a depression rather than a recession, do you think? Well, the difficulty is, of course, how you, you resist, how you, how you don't slide that far. I mean, we only define a recession as uh, awkwardly as two consecutive quarters of negative growth. Um, we don't define a depression. Um, but if that, process of recession continues for a quarter or two more, then you are probably in a depression. And the orders of magnitude could rival those of the 20s and early 30s if, if, it's, if it's not managed well. I mean, it comes back to how well do they manage it? And the central banks know. I mean, actually, um, 
the guard the other day in the, in Europe said that we've got to recognise the reality that central banks really can't do much more, which of course she had to withdraw. That didn't go down well. The packages were going out at the same time. But the reality is that that is the case, mm. and they can't do much more. And uh, if you don't have confidence, you can give make as much liquidity as you like available. If people don't have the confidence to actually take advantage of it, invest it, spend it, then it's not going to happen. And uh, that's the risk you've got. You've got a very delicate psychological position of a lot of players in the system that if they finally accept the reality of how tough this is going to be, they might just pull back and say, okay, we'll batten down the hatches. Just like giving even a welfare recipient $750, um, they might say, well, that's a one-off. I better, t- well, I can spend some of it, but I'm going to have to keep some of it because mm. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Mm. I don't know whether I'll actually get a job, whatever it is. And there's not other, not much thinking about those social and psychological no. impacts of this this sort of behaviour. Well, we've one thing in habits of frugality in this country in a long time, and uh, I guess the yes. bad and the good is that we might we might see a little bit of that. Yes, that's a really interesting point. I was I was also about to make the point that um, you know uh, we're seeing conservative governments all around the world here and in Britain and in the US and and everywhere else uh, suddenly becoming kind of hyper Keynesians. Everyone understands the idea that you need to. Pump public money into the economy to try and, you know, lessen the severity of this downturn. And, uh, it doesn't show any signs of abating at this stage. We don't know where it's going to go. And of course, every day, even we're recording this. So there may be developments that occur in between when we've done this and when you're listening to it. But, um, every day, the pace of uh, news and, and events is uh, absolutely staggering. And of course, uh, the, the death toll rises. So it's a time of, Great extremists in the world. It's an unfortunate trade-off too between cushioning the economy, maintaining the, the damage or minimising the damage, I should say, on the economy. In terms of the other side of that, is that you know you may be accelerating the death rate by not doing as much as you should do on the other side. So that that choice, implicit choice, is a very difficult choice for anybody to make. Mike, could I just jump in with one thought about, I guess, how how we're going to get through this as a as a country? Because I think the the bushfires illustrated this to some extent earlier this year, but I think this crisis will illustrate it much more starkly for everyone. There's a for a long time in Australia now, there's been a sense that the big issues that matter are things that, if you like, uh, government will look after without necessarily involving the public in daily responsibility for those outcomes. And I think on the bushfires on on COVID-19 and so many other issues that affect us now. I mean, cyber security was always one of those, but only in a seemingly in a more boutique way. Every every citizen is going to be responsible for each other's welfare and for the outcomes to come. And I think the big test in the next year or two is going to be whether Australia is the kind of country where that can happen, whether we've in fact achieved that that culture, because I think we always have told ourselves we're a very resilient society. Well, we're about to find out if that's true. I think that's a very uh, excellent point and a a good note to finish on, Rory. Let's hope that we see, uh, I think, as I was uh, saying with my comments at the beginning, let's hope we see an improvement in the behaviour of uh, some people. Of course, many people are are doing everything they can, but there have been some poor examples of um, people taking this far too lightly. So let's hope that we see an improvement in that and and that this isn't as severe as uh, some of the predictions have it. It's all we've got time for today. Can I thank Rory Medcalf and John Houston for being Thanks, here Mike. with Democracy Sausage. Uh, we'll be back again with you next week and uh, probably with a Democracy Sausage extra 
midweek around Friday, I would think. So thanks for joining us and uh, let's talk again about, no doubt, this grim subject and, and other things too, hopefully. Bye for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.